everybody. Welcome to Salmorum Liber. That's Latin for studying the Psalms. And this is a series that I'm going to be going through in the book of Psalms, the whole book of Psalms. So starting in chapter one, and we'll go all the way through to chapter 150. And so these series of podcasts are available to you to listen to at your own leisure, to sit down and maybe use in your personal study time or reflection time or commuting time, whatever you would like. Hope you find them helpful, uh, useful, and uh, I hope that they help you not only grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also in your experience and worship of him. Thanks very much. Take care. Psalm 75, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a Psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Um, so right at the beginning, we're told that this is a psalm of Asaph. We are told that it's a psalm to something called do not destroy. Uh, we're not exactly entirely sure what that means, whether it's a style of song or whether it's a, a mode of singing it. Um, but here we have this title anyway, and it's a psalm of Asaph, and it's meant to be sung. Uh, the psalm actually can be divided into three sections, and that's what I've done for this study. I've divided it into three sections. Uh, verses 1 to 3, I've called this a certainty of judgment. And verses 4 to 8, I've called a warning to the wicked. And verses 9 and 10, I've called a vow to certainty. Um, now, as you're reading through the psalm, you can probably pick out that there is a change in speakers. Okay, uh, we notice that at the beginning, uh, it is very much Asaph or the the worship leader uh, leading the congregation through the psalm with the words, "We give thanks to you, O God." Right, and that name of God at the verse one is Elohim, and to remind us once again of what that means, it means specifically that God is a God, a mighty God who judges. Uh, it talks about the plurality of his majesty, which is an interesting concept to think about because it reflects the Trinity, but it also focuses on his great power. And you'll, and you'll see some of that uh, theme peppered through this psalm even. And, and if I was to uh, pull a little plug for this Sunday's workshop, we will be talking about the power of God, or, or in other words, the omnipotence of God in the workshop this Sunday. Um, so 
Uh, you'll notice that God's name is mentioned just a few times in this psalm, in verse 1 and in verse 7. Uh, it is the same uh, word, Elohim, same name. And then you'll see that his name is repeated in number 8. Uh, but this time it is the hand of the Lord or the Lord. And that that word is Jehovah. Okay, And there's a specific reason for that. And we'll, we'll unpack that as we get to it. Uh, and then you see in verse 9, there's the God of Jacob. Right. And so that that's a designation of God's covenant relationship with the Israelite people. Okay, Uh, and that's very important for not only for the Israelites to think about and remember, but it's also important for us to remember. Okay, because we we have to kind of step across two stones, so to speak. There's there's the exact meaning and context that would have meant something to those who were singing it at the time that they were singing it as well as it would have to have uh, a meaning and, and, and implications for us today, okay? Uh, so we need to remember that God is the God of Jacob. You'll also notice that there's a lot of repetition when it comes to lift up, right? So we see this, this phrase lift up in verse 4, in verse 5. We see a version of it in verse 6, uh, lifting up. We see that same phrase used in verse 7. And then in verse 10, we see that that um, past tense of lifted up. Now, we have to remember that uh, in the Old Testament, when something was lifted up, it was meant to describe the exalted state of something. It's different than the phraseology used of how God is the lifter of our heads. Now, what that phrase means is that God lifts us out of the shame that we are experiencing. Okay, so uh, very, very realistically, um, and I would even say somewhat metaphorically, pardon me, that when we've done something wrong and we feel shame about it, we hang our heads, right? Because we're embarrassed to look at people in the eye. um, and, and, And there's almost a visceral feeling that comes with that. So the phrase, the lifter of my head, means that God is our salvation. He is the one that lifts us out of the shame. And, and puts us on the solid rock of Christ. That's not the meaning that's intended here in the Psalm 75. When, it's, when the word lifted up is used here, it's, it's exclusively about exaltation, lifting something up higher than all other things. Okay, And, and you'll see how that um, can really connects with the theme, especially in the middle of this Psalm, verses 4 to 8, where we see that, that that account used four different times okay um and it means something when it's repeated like that because remember in hebrew language especially in poetry when there was an emphasis on importance it would be repeated okay um and here we have it uh listed five times for us in 10 verses so there must be something significant about this idea of lifting up you'll also notice uh, that the word horn is used a few times. Uh, in fact, three times. You'll see it used in verse 4 and in verse 5 and then again in verse 10. Now, this is an interesting um, situation for us because in New Testament times, we like especially when we look at the book of Revelation, we would interpret the horn as being a ruler or a king. Okay, And in some cases, that is true. But more often than not, in the Old Testament, a horn was most associated with strength or status. Okay, um, and, and 
specifically, uh, it, that was split into two different perspectives. One was a horn of praise and of exaltation to the Lord, as well as describing how someone would shout or live out their arrogance. Uh, and, and some other um, translations use the word haughtiness, meaning that they're, they're brazen in how they live and they don't care what others think or that they don't care about what others feel about the sin that they are living out. And so you can see how that fits well. You can see how that fits really well into the context, especially in verses four and five, right? Where there's the warning to the wicked. So the word horn is used a few times. Um, There's also a a stark distinction between the wicked and the righteous. Um, And and you'll see that all the way through the psalm. and, and I wanted to point out an interesting piece in this psalm uh, that in verse 3, we see this very unique phrase. Now, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. So we know that the earth doesn't sit on pillars, right? We know that. It's it rotates in on its axis and it's in space and rotates around the sun and the sun rotates in this galaxy that we have. It's not set on pillars. What do you think the psalmist is referring to when they wrote and when they sing this specific verse? So it's it's it's, it's interesting how we make connections to this phrase of how God is a pillar of 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 uh, cloud and fire and um and how uh, he presents himself in that manifestation. When we look at when we look at the context of the psalm, mm-hmm. especially that middle piece, uh, th- this verse speaks to us of God's steady presence in the midst of chaos and calamity, right? Like we often talk about the pillars of society or the foundation of society or the foundation of our culture. And when those very things shake and, you know, why, oh, baby alert, when, uh, <laughs> when, when those things shake, right, uh, it, it can seem that everything is going to fall or fall down around us. It can seem like the world is crashing in and there's, and there's no, there's no stability, right? Um, and I know that there are certain times in our lives where all of us have felt that way. And yet, there's a very there's a very uh, important promise in here that when God says, "When the earth totters and and all of its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady the pillars." Right. So even though there's all this chaos and all this calamity going on around us, and it would seem like the very foundations of our society are being destroyed. God is saying that even in the midst of all that, I am the one who's holding it all together, right? Which is a massive promise for us to lean into because it flows out of verse two, right? Like verse two says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. Now with equity is that evenness and and with uprightness and um, it's really descriptive of God's justice. And, And we would understand that, with the communicable attribute of justice or the justice of God, we know that God 
cannot tolerate evil and that he and because he knows all things he can take all things into account when he judges that's why we can we can bank on the fact that when god judges it's a complete judgment and it's a just judgment not not like any of our judges on earth would would judge right um because he is without sin and so the first half of that verse really speaks to God's sovereignty and his eternal knowledge. Okay? At the set time that I appoint, which means that outside of time, and we've talked about this in the workshop, that because God is eternal, he is outside of time at the same time in every moment of time. Okay? And because he is outside of time, before time even existed, right? Before he created the universe by by saying let there be light even before that point he has set things in place and we know that because we would look at the book of ephesians and and the book of colossians and it would tell us these things that that god created these things for us and created these things to do for us even before the foundation of the very world right meaning that before he even created he set these things in place and so verse 2 is a, is, a, is, a, is a really strong anchor for the promise that we find in verse 3. So if I was to put a metaphor to this, I would say that verse 2 is the anchor and verse 3 is the rope from the anchor to our boat. Okay, Where we are on the top of the water and it seems like everything is just gone haywire and we may even feel very much out of control. Yet, the rope that connects us to the promise uh, is, is God's sovereignty and his eternal knowledge because the promise is, is that when everything's going cha- chaotic and going wrong, I'm still in control. And, and, I, and I hope that makes sense to us. Um, yeah. And so... The, the, the very idea that God's steady presence is in the midst of all the chaos and calamity that we're seeing and or experiencing should bring the Christian a, a lot of certainty. Okay. Um, and I called this first section the certainty of judgment because of verse two, that there will come a time when God ultimately judges. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't expect God to judge in the present time. But I think often we we want God to judge in both the present and the future. That if somebody or a group of people or or, um, a situation happens where we don't see any justice here on earth in the moment we know that all things will be brought to account when that person is brought before God after they die or when Jesus comes back and, and sets things straight. So um, it's a very, very powerful opening to, to the psalm. In verses 4 to 8, I've called this the warning to the wicked. And, um, you know, that, that can be pretty self-explanatory in the sense of you just look at verse 1. Um, and some have called this a prophetic announcement, whether this is God speaking or whether this is a prophet in the midst speaking. Um, you can see here that the quotation is, uh, do not boast, do not lift up your horn. So uh, we'll just call it a prophetic statement, 
where God is saying to the boastful, don't boast. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what does boasting mean? What does boasting mean? So it's, it's, it's good to know that in the Hebrew language, this word can be used both for good and for evil. Okay. Um, so there are accounts in scripture where people boast in the Lord. They sing praises to the Lord, right? They shout out loud to the Lord. That's being boastful. In fact, Paul uses that same language, right? Where he says, I, I boast in Christ. Um, and so he, all of his accomplishments mean nothing. It, all that matters to him is knowing Christ and him crucified. And I will boast of Christ every day of my life, he says. So in, in Hebrew language, this word boast actually has a really interesting application to it because it really means to shine a light. And you think, hmm, to shine a light, that, that my first inclination to think of this as to shine a light would be like a, like a flashlight or a lighthouse or like, what does that mean? But that's not what it means. What it means is to shine a light so that people can see on the inside. So when God is saying to the boastful, do not boast, he's saying to them, stop highlighting what you're doing. Stop bringing to light whatever you're doing. Right. So boastful people tend to uh, be somewhat narcissistic in their approach to themselves. They tend to talk a lot about themselves. They tend to uh, only talk about what their experiences are and or what solutions they've had or how they've helped other people. It's very much centered on themselves. Right. And we're all guilty of being boastful to some degree and in some applications. But those people who really are captured by the sin of boastfulness almost have this, this impulse to always talk about themselves and never other people. Even if the conversation is, is about others, somehow they will bring the conversation back to themselves. So that's, that's that application of the metaphor of shining the light, of them taking the light and shining it onto things that they are doing to highlight, to elevate to a level of praise what they are doing. Now, like I said, that can be used both positively and negatively, right? Positively, we shine a light on what God has done, what God has done for us, what Christ has done, how God has created everything, how he's good, how he's merciful. And we boast in those things, right? And that's a good thing to do. But here, it's not in the positive uh, affirmations. It's, it's very much a negative. And you see how he says to the wicked, right, do not lift up your horn, right? So the wicked we would understand as those who are ungodly, but it's also about, it's also about talking about those people who are guilty of sin, who are guilty of a crime uh, spiritually before God, okay? And not only guilty of it, but perpetuators of it, okay? So it's a, so it's a state of, uh, what I would call state of salvation, that they're not saved yet, okay? Um, or they may not be part of the elect, and, and that's all I'm going to go into about that. But the second statement is, do not lift up your horn, right? So the horn here means strength and status. Um, and what God is saying here is, stop shining a light on what you're doing. And he says to the wicked who are guilty of a crime, stop exalting your strength and your status in this world. Which is an interesting 
um, uh, judgment upon people. We, we, do we see that today? Do we see people raising themselves up above others because of what they've done or what they can do um, or their potential? How, do we see that today? So if anything, it should remind us that the human heart doesn't change, right? That if people struggled with it back in the day when Asaph wrote this, we're, we're still going to see people struggle with it today. In fact, some of us even may struggle with pride and, and, and boasting, right? We're not wicked because we are saved. We are made righteous through the blood of Christ. But the warning is still there for us. Don't, don't lift up what you do, right? Don't, don't highlight that because um, the underlying current to that, remember, is, is God's power and sovereignty and his his uh, his his uh, goodness to us in, in giving us the things that we have. Um, this phrase "haughty neck," you see that in verse five. So again, the, the, it's it's repeated. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. And I'm like, what does that even mean, right? Like haughty neck. And so I, I looked at a few other translations. And, uh, and, and this is what they, they said. So the NIV says, do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched neck. Well, that doesn't, okay. Outstretched, like what is it? Stretching my neck up. Um, the new living translation says this, don't raise your fists in defiance at the heavens or speak with such arrogance. That's, that's getting a little closer to the actual meaning of the Hebrew. Yeah, it would it would it would give that impression, right, Dean? That if you're prideful, you got your shoulders back and your chest out, and you're kind of strutting around like a peacock with all the feathers up, right? Yeah, I like what the New Century Version says. Says this: Don't try to use your power against heaven. Don't be stubborn. And again, <laughs> it's 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 revealing because. In the Hebrew understanding of what's being said here, God is saying, don't lift up your horn on high or speak with an insolent pride. Stop speaking so arrogantly. Uh, one commentator said this, that it's, it's the wicked refuse to submit to God's yoke. Right? And so... Um, this idea of stretch, of speaking with an outstretched neck, uh, means that they that they're they're fighting against the yoke. Uh, that's that's God's law, and it reminds us of what Jesus says in in the Gospels, right? Come to me, all of you who are who are are, are heavily laden, and I will I will give you my yoke, and my yoke is easy and light, right? Um, in essence, Jesus is saying, come to me and submit to me instead of to the world, instead of to yourself. Submit to me. Right? So the issue here uh, in verse 5 is about submission. Because it fits so well about don't exalt your strength. Don't exalt your status. Be humble. Be humble. And it's all driving towards the real center, what I call the crux of this whole psalm. And that's verse 7, right? Um, we see, but it is God, Elohim, who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Now, that word lifting up is the same as 
the lift up that he uses negatively in verses four and five, right? So in four and five is don't exalt your strength. Don't exalt your power. Don't exalt your status. But here in verse seven, it says it's God who executes judgment, putting down one and exalting another, right? So this really speaks to God's sovereignty in the actions of men and, and, and women, right? The, the sovereignty of God in humanity. And so we often see this ap- applied in rulers around the world, right? Where, yes, there's voting and, and yes, we, we actively participate in all of that. But there is a sense here, too, that God is in control of all things. And so we believe that Justin Trudeau is in power because that's what God wanted, Right. We believe that that Biden is in power because that's what God wanted. We don't we may not like it. In fact, we may not like it at all. But this is that submission piece that is talked about. Submit to God. Why? Because he's the one who executes judgment. He's the one who will bring down people and raise up others. Right. And so. Uh, this this is a real cementing and, and what I call a centering verse for us in this whole psalm, um, because it's it's really God who's supposed to take care of the judging, not me, not me. And it leads me into verse eight, which is kind of the most interesting verse of the whole psalm, right? For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Yeah, that's that's a pretty powerful verse, right? <clears throat> so let me see if I can unpack this a tiny bit for us. Um, if, if you know some of your New Testament uh, a little bit, you you may recognize that there's some parallel here to the Book of Revelation. Okay, we won't we won't turn there, uh, but in Revelation 14 and 16, it talks about the cup of the wrath of the Lord, right, or the the wrath of God in His cup. Um, in, in Habakkuk chapter 2, uh, let's turn there because, you know, when's the last time you heard a sermon on Habakkuk? It is after Nahum and before Zephaniah. So in my Bible, it's page 1308, if you have the same Bible I do. But, yeah, so after Nahum, before Zephaniah. So Habakkuk chapter 2, which is the chapter that captured Martin Luther's attention, that the righteous shall live by faith. Right, but we're gonna we're gonna turn to verse sixteen. It says, You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup is in the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. So that what that is saying is that the God's judgment will make its way around to you. Okay? And when it talks about the cup being in the Lord's right hand, the right hand of the Lord signifies strength, power, authority. Okay? Almost the same language that's used in Psalm 75 verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. Right? So the Lord is ready to, to pass this cup around to those who are the wicked, and they will they will uh, participate in His judgment in against their wickedness, and they will drink the wine of His wrath down to the dregs, which means like down to the very bottom where all the silt and all that other stuff is. Like they won't let anything go to waste. And so uh, yeah, and so let's turn to Matthew chapter twenty six, Matthew twenty six. Verse 39, this is in the crucifixion account. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Uh, and so um, you, you see here in verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And so I don't know if you've, if you've spent any time in this in this section of Matthew, but here's the connection between Psalm 25 and, and Matthew 26, is that this, this wine, bec- the reason it's foaming is because in the ancient world, they would often mix in spices with the wine. And in fact, it would be called today mulled wine, okay? And it would enhance the, the flavor of the wine. Okay, here in Matthew 26 and verse 34, they mix in a, a kind of a bitterness in the wine. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's to make the wine not taste as sweet as it normally would so that the, the person wouldn't drink too much, but they would, they would still wet their mouth and, uh, and, and soothe their throat with, with the liquid. But it's a very powerful metaphor here in Psalm 75 where there's a cup foaming, a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, okay? Meaning that God's wrath is in this cup, metaphorically, and it's well mixed. There's, there's, n- there's no um, part of that cup that is not without his wrath, okay? And so uh, we could look at uh, Psalm 16 and, and see the cup of blessing that God offers to his people. We could also look at Job 21, and look at the cup of wrath that God exercises against people. So um, this wine mentioned here is a medicated wine. Uh, it was meant to to kind of uh, speed up the inebriation process of those who were drinking it. It was meant to increase the flavor of the wine um, so much so that people would, would keep drinking it because it just tasted so good. Um, and at the same time, it was also medicated to the point where it would it would drive them to inebriation quicker. Okay. And so then in verse 9 and 10, uh, we've called this a vow to certainty. And we're back to either Asaph or the, the worship leader. Uh, and, and Asaph says, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Right. And the God of Jacob is a reference to the covenant God of Israel, our covenant God. Okay. The God who made a covenant with us through Christ. Right. And that once we are uh, saved, he will see it through to completion. Okay. Our sanctification uh, in, in the sense of being set apart, made holy, uh, is, is done and secure in the, in, the, in the blood of Christ. Our daily sanctification process <clears throat> is empowered through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that only can happen because we've submitted ourselves to the yoke of Christ. We, we've prayed for his forgiveness. We've believed in our heart that Jesus was a son of God and that he died and was raised again to life, right? Uh, and then one day we will be fully sanctified where we won't go through this fight with sin uh, here on this earth anymore. And so that's the description of covenant God, the God of Jacob. As in the Old Testament, you would remember that God is often described as the God of Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, God of Moses, Abraham, and, and they would list it off uh, in chronological order. And they would do that not to remind the people that, oh yeah, God was, our God is the same God as the God that Moses worshipped. 
that's not entirely the main reason. The main reason was to establish in people's thinking that God is a covenant God, right? Because God made a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Jacob by David, okay? And so all these things come flooding back into the Israelites' brains and helps them to remember that no matter what they're going through in the calamity, in the chaos, God is their covenant God. And then we end with all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. So the strength and status of the wicked will be cut off, will be will be sent and dealt away with. I, God will judge that. But the strength and status of the righteous will be lifted up, will be exalted. Okay. And the ironic thing here, right, brothers and sisters, the ironic thing is that our strength and our status is found in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Right? It's found in Christ. So the, the, the ironic thing to all this is that God working through the Holy Spirit in our life to, to increase our sanctification, to increase our holiness, to increase our righteousness on this planet, all of that strength and status will be lifted up on high by God himself because of the shed blood of Christ that was shed for us on, on the cross. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's it. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. <laughs>